Now hear God's holy word from Joel chapter 1. Pay close attention. This is God's word. The word of Yahweh that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are indeed thankful for your word, and as we uh, reflect on all the ways that you have sent your son to us, both to forgive us, to wrestle with us, to sanctify us, to transform us, we now look to the reality of his coming to be our judge and judge of all the earth. So Father, as we reflect on these things, make us fearful in the right way, to fear your holy name and to uh, give honor and praise to your righteousness and your justice in the, in the earth. And so, Father, uh, cause us to look forward to this and fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, imagine, if you can, for just a few moments, imagine that you are a farmer living in Judah around 600 B.C. And as the sun sets one evening... You watch as the glory of the heavens unfolds before you, a beautiful sunset over your healthy fields of grain, your orchards full of fruit trees, your lush vineyard ready to yield a crop of grapes. There's been plenty of rain this season, and it looks like you're going to have a really good year. Things are looking really nice. You're going to have enough crops to sell and make a profit. You're going to have enough to keep and feed your own family as well. You expect that there's going to be even enough to put back and maybe sell or use next year. You're sitting in a pretty good position. In addition, your cattle, your sheep, your goats, all your livestock are healthy. They're well fed. The pastures are green and well watered. You couldn't ask for a better set of circumstances as you lay your head down to sleep that evening. The next morning, however, you wake up and the world has changed while you slept. You look outside to find that even though there's not a cloud in the sky, the land is dark because billions of flying insects blot out the sun. They fly through the air, they cover the ground. When you walk outside, you can't help but step on them. They crunch under your feet. They bounce off of your face and off of your body mindlessly as they hop and scatter everywhere. The sound of their wings fills the air, a great buzzing swarm, but also another sound, very as audible fills the air, the sound of their eating. The fields that were so green are now consumed with bugs. You yell and you scream and you wave at them and you try to shoo them away, but they just enclose back around you. It doesn't do any good. You can, do, you can wave and scream and yell all you want. It doesn't change a thing. As you watch, they're stripping away the grain and the stalk. And throughout the morning, the trees are devoured. Leaves, fruit, stem, 
branch, bark. The grass of the pastures is mown down to the dirt. The cattle are spooked. They're running around bellowing like crazy. The, the bugs are in their eyes and in their ears, uh, torturing them. The, the goats are offended at the assault, as goats are often offended at most anything. They are offended at the bugs as well. And when the insects have eaten everything, when they've stripped everything on your land, they swarm off to find something else green to destroy, leaving nothing but bare earth in their wake. There's a few stalks, there's some stripped vines, and some leafless trees left in your orchard. The swarm of insects is like a giant eraser that eliminates all the green from the countryside. As, as it moves across the territory, everything green is turned brown. The, the Garden of Eden lies before them and a desolate wilderness lies behind them. Now, as the morning goes on, all the hope that you had of a great harvest is gone. Now, not only do you not have anything to sell, you're now worried about what are we going to eat? How are we gonna feed our family? You, you have your livestock, but your animals aren't gonna last very long when there's no grass. How would you feel? That's the scene at the opening of the Old Testament prophetic book of Joel. A wave of locusts has just swept through the kingdom of Judah, completely destroying the crops and the trees, eating everything leafy and green, and leaving the people in shock, incredulity, despondency, hopelessness, grief, anxiety. No one can believe the extent of the damage. Insects did this. Now, you've probably driven through an area right after a tornado, or maybe you've driven through an area after a hurricane, or you've at least seen it on television, but if you've driven through those areas, you look around and you think, oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start. Where do you start putting things back together? And you see the looks on people's faces. Words fail you. The damage looks impossible to repair or to recover from, and the task looks absolutely insurmountable. It's just despair. Well, the prophet Joel arrives on the scene and he surveys the disaster just like that. And he says, you can just see him holding his hands to his head and saying, has anything happened like this before? Has this, has this ever happened before? Elders, have you ever seen anything like this? Fathers, did you ever, did you ever live through something like this? This is the greatest natural and economic disaster to hit the kingdom of Judah in a very, very, very long time. Nobody can remember anything ever happening like this. Joel tells us what happened. An army of locusts has invaded the land. Locusts are six inch long grasshoppers that travel in these aggressive devouring swarms. They can travel up to 80 miles a day. Plagues of locusts, you know, that sounds very apocalyptic. That sounds very, you know, biblical from, you know, the scary chapters of the Bible to talk about locusts, right? It's, it's something strange and alien that it sounds like, well, that doesn't happen anymore. But the reality is that uh, the continents of Australia and Africa still are plagued uh, uh, frequently by, uh, by plagues of locusts. And they don't just affect one crop, they go after everything. They also, in this, in this ironic way, thrive in particularly rainy seasons. So when you, when you have enough water for your crops to really flourish, you find that the locusts are also really flourishing. 
Um, scientists haven't come up with a solution. Even today, modern scientists don't have any defense against hordes of locusts. So imagine now in 600 AD, farmers in Judah, when this happened, were absolutely devastated. The land is laid to waste. The farms are stripped bare. But there are some people who are not in the business of farming who might be tempted to take things lightly. You know, if we're divorced from the original source of our food, as so many of us are, if we don't have to slaughter the pig or kill the chicken, if we don't have to pick the corn, we have this, you know, separation from our food. And so we think, well, what does that mean to me if, you know, the farmers have trouble? Well, how does that affect me? I get my food from Walmart. I don't get it from the ground, you know? What does this mean? So Judah, I'm sorry, Joel understands that there may be some tempted to think this way. And so he tells them to wake up. In verse five, he says, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the new wine that has been cut off from your mouths. A nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of Yahweh. The priests mourn who minister to Yahweh. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined and the new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Joel says, don't take any of this lightly. Everyone needs to pay attention to what has just happened. It's like an army has just invaded us and has taken away everything. No grapes means no wine. No grain means no bread. Everyone suffers. Everyone's going to be hungry and thirsty. And if you don't have any wine... That means there's no celebration. He mentions the young virgins who are girded in sackcloth instead of their wedding gowns. How can you have a proper wedding with no wine and no food? Also, no bread and no wine means that worship at the temple has been interrupted. You can't worship properly. You can't do the, do the sacrifices. You can't do the liturgy at the temple without bread and wine. So that's been interrupted as well. No grain offerings, no wine offerings. And if the animals starve and die, that means no sacrifices either. On top of that, no olives means no olive oil. And if you have no olive oil, you don't have light. You don't have anything to burn in your lamps. So we're hungry and it's dark. So the drunkard has no drink, the priest has no sacrifice to offer, the farmer has no crops to sell, the bride has no wedding celebration to look forward to, and everyone wonders what we're going to eat, and the lights have gone out. He continues in verse 11, he says, Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up. The fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. All the pleasure has been sucked out of life. Everyone is in a stupor. You have to look really hard to find something to smile about. And moreover, nobody knows what to do. What is the proper response to such a tragedy? 
Well, that's why we have the prophets. The prophets come along and help us interpret what we're seeing and help us understand, well, what's the right response to this? And so Joel says, here's what you do. Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And here's what you do. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of Yahweh your God and cry out to Yahweh. Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Well, what do you do? What can you do? You do the only thing that's left to do. You do the only thing you can do. You call the whole congregation together and you cry out to Yahweh. Everyone from the oldest to the youngest, no one is exempt. You come together and you cry out for mercy and you cry out for forgiveness and you cry out for relief and protection and sustenance because you recognize that what has happened is the Lord's doing. You don't ignore it. You don't explain it away. You don't imagine, well, maybe there was some other cause. Maybe God didn't have anything to do with it. Now, the prophet refers to this event as the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord, this this locust plague is the precursor to a greater day of the Lord that's coming, which is the Babylonian invasion of the kingdom of Judah. And that altogether is yet another sign of a a yet greater day of the Lord that Peter speaks about on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, remember he says, "This this is what the prophet Joel said. This is what he was talking about. This is the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is what we've already heard about. So this advent We've been meditating on the day of the Lord as it's revealed through the scriptures. The the day of the Lord, what is that? Well, that's when we're visited by God, when he draws near to us to evaluate, to wrestle, to redeem, to forgive, to perform his mighty works in the world. The message of the season of Advent is that God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ to inspect and evaluate and wrestle and sanctify And this Jesus who has come to us continues to come to us and he will come in the end uh, to be judge of all the earth at the resurrection. So this fourth and final Sunday of Advent, let's zero in on this particular theme, the theme of judgment as it relates to the day of the Lord, as the primary feature of God's visitation. In fact, if I were to say, what is the day of the Lord? Probably most of us would say, well, it's the, it's the day of judgment. It's that Dies Irae that uh, all the great composers composed um, uh, uh, hymns and, and uh, orchestrations for, that, that day of wrath, that day of judgment, that, that day of God's drawing near to evaluate and to shake things up and to set things right. Where does God begin this work of coming in judgment? It starts all the way back at, uh, in Genesis. It starts in the, in the creation. When God is creating the world, every day of creation, he stops to evaluate. He stops to judge the earth. And of course, because it's his work and because it's perfect, he judges it very good. Everything is good and good and better and more glorious. But he comes in judgment against his own creation. Then he comes again in judgment to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. He visits Cain in judgment after he killed his brother. Again, at the flood, God draws near and he comes in judgment. Now, of course, when God comes and he draws near, he comes with blessing. 
He comes with deliverance, but he also often and, and most often comes with judgment because judgment is a means of deliverance. Judgment is a means of blessing. So when we read the prophets speak about the day of the Lord, there are all kinds of redemptive and salvific benefits that flow out of the day of the Lord, but the central message of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, the central message is the reality of imminent judgment. The response to which must be repentance and obedience. The call when the prophets come talking about the day of the Lord, the response is get your affairs in order because God is coming to clean house. And that's not just an Old Testament theme. Jesus comes and when he comes, what does he talk about? Well, he, he preaches the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. And he says that there's coming a reckoning for the whole house of Israel. He talks about, Jesus talks about the impending destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And then Peter and Paul both pick this up in their epistles. Both of them warn about the coming day of the Lord in their epistles. There's no part of the Bible that you can go to and, and be insulated from these warnings. But on the surface, I understand this doesn't sound like a very cozy theme to meditate on, and certainly not with the start of Christmas just two days away. After all, judgment is a bad thing, right? Nobody wants to talk about judgment. No, wants, no one wants to be uh, judgy, right? You know, you're being kind of judgy right now, right? I've, I've heard that from uh, a young lady in my house. She said, you're being awful judgy, right? <laughs> uh, and of course, we're teasing. We're joking about that. She knows uh, the, the difference uh, between judgmentalism and proper judgment. But, but nobody wants to be a judge. This whole topic of, of judgment sounds very onerous. But remember, there's, there's great joy to be found in this theme that, that God is the righteous judge of all the earth and that he has come in judgment because he is righteous and will continue to come in judgment until the final day of judgment to evaluate his work and work his justice in the world. And if we forget this, if we neglect this theme and this, this doctrine of God's judgment, if, if we marginalize it, we effectively sterilize God. We turn him into some kind of cosmic teddy bear or, or some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who, who really doesn't have any standards. He doesn't really have any expectations. He just, he just uh, is nice and, and cozy. It's because we don't want to think about this reality of God's judgment that there's so much sentimentalizing uh, in the Advent and Christmas seasons. Everyone can get excited about a gentle and harmless baby. What, everybody, can, everybody can celebrate that. There's nothing intimidating about a baby. Baby Jesus is one that almost everybody can tolerate. Baby Jesus is, everybody loves babies. I love babies. Babies are cute. Babies, don't, you, you're not really threatened by a baby. But no one wants to talk about, nobody wants to hear about King Jesus. Now, baby Jesus is fine, but what about King Jesus? Moreover, what about Judge Jesus? The reality is, is that the child in the manger is the God to whom all judgment has been committed. Who's in Revelation 1, we read, whose eyes are as flaming fires, whose feet are as burnished bronze, whose voice is like the sound of many waters whose cause is that of truth and meekness and righteousness, whose hands hold sharp arrows under which his enemies fall in Psalm 45. He is the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord in Philippians 2. You see, you can't 
properly understand baby Jesus unless you have a reckoning with judge Jesus and King Jesus. We'd rather have her push all of that out of our minds and because to acknowledge him as judge is to acknowledge that there's something in us that needs to be judged and there's something in the world that needs to be judged. That, that you know, we, we ignore that, that we'll all have to answer to him and that, you know, somehow we'll get out of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. As, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the judgment done in the body, the things done in the body according to what he has done, either good or bad. Is that reality a present reality for you? Do you you realize that? Is that something that's on your mind ever? That you're going to have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for everything. That you're going to have to give an account and he's got questions for you. Now, why did you do this? What, What happened here? Why did, you, why, why did you make that decision? Explain this to me. How, how did you get there? Does, does, that, does that strike you as, as something, that is, is, is something that you ought to have on your mind, that, that you will have to give an account? Do you consider that when you make huge decisions for your life and for your family? Is, is that on your mind? See, ju- God is judge, and we don't despair at that because God is also good. And therefore, his judgment is good for us and good for the whole earth. So for the wayward, the sinner, the indifferent, the day of the Lord is a time of dread and fear. It's a time to straighten up and repent. It's the day of the Lord is a gracious deadline. You know it's coming. So you say, man, it's time to, it's time to get everything put together. But the righteous rejoice in the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is when God comes to judge the wicked. He saves his faithful people from the oppressor. He saves his people from the injustice of the wicked. The wicked spoil society. The wicked impose all kinds of evils on other people. And so when the Lord comes to set things right, the righteous are blessed. Do you think Christians in China are praying for the day of the Lord now? You think maybe they're looking for God to come shake things up and put down the oppressors from their thrones and and raise up those of low degree? Do you think they're not praying for that this Lord's day? They certainly are. They're waiting for the day of the Lord. Why? Because this is the day of our deliverance. The day of the Lord is the day we're set free. What about Christians enslaved in Muslim lands? Are they not looking for the day of the Lord? They're looking for God to come in judgment and to execute justice on the tyrants and the, and the oppressors that they are under. So at Joel's time in history, the day of the Lord came in the form of a locust plague. And God's judgment here shouldn't have come as a complete surprise. Just before Joel's time, the Assyrian army had attacked and wiped out Israel the northern kingdom, the idolatrous kingdom of northern Israel. And the Assyrian army had marched all the way to the gates of Jerusalem in Judah. They had surrounded the city until the prophet Isaiah and King Hezekiah interceded and prayed for deliverance. The Assyrian army was wiped out by an angel of the Lord, but this was a wake-up call for Judah and Jerusalem, to say the least. And now that they've had this call, the southern kingdom of Judah is yet adrift and Joel has come to help them interpret the locust plague and respond appropriately because a greater danger, a greater calamity sits on the horizon. The empire of Babylon is growing and swallowing up nations and unless Judah makes the right corrections, Yahweh is going to allow Judah 
to be swallowed up too. Now you might say, well, this is all good and interesting Bible history, but what has this got to do with me? What's this got to do with us? Well, a great deal. We live in a culture and a society that's really bad at interpreting locust plagues in a manner of speaking. We go through disasters and calamities and we go through economic crises. We're attacked by our enemies. We're being chastised and disciplined and corrected. And our response as a society is typically not repentance, not sackcloth and ashes. Our response is bluster and hubris and rationalizing and flag waving. We're, we're, like, the, we're like the drunkards that Joel mentions who, who don't really understand the full impact of what's going on. What are we witnessing? What are we experiencing? Because we're stupid. We have institutionalized stupidity and sloth and theft and perversion and all manner of wickedness. I mean, we are a culture that's okay with killing babies. So what, what, what will get through to us? What will get through to our, our, our heads? What will convict us? We allow all kinds of perversion to flourish. We not only allow it to flourish, we affirm it, we feed it, we water it, we fertilize it. We've gotten so used to meddling with other countries and, and bombing them that it makes hardly any headlines anymore. The, the, the president just this week, he called for the, uh, the removal of, of military from Syria. And the response of everybody was, wait a minute, we've got people in Syria? What? Well, it's because we're not, we don't, we don't know. We we're so hardened toward warfare and suffering that we inflict. In fact, that's probably one of the best missions we've got going right now because we're taking uh, the warfare to Islam and to radical Islam. But we say, I don't know what, what's going on. This is, uh, we're doing this. I don't know what we're doing. You know, if you know the Bible, you know that nations like ours don't get to camp out and oppress and slaughter and party like nothing's wrong with impunity. If you know the Bible, you know that we're headed for one of two things, repentance or destruction. There's no, there's no other way. There's no other plan. You know that destruction, though, doesn't always come overnight. The Lord is patient and he is merciful and he gives us warnings and he gives us wake-up calls. He sends locusts before he sends Babylonians. This is the way God works. So Joel helps us to process and assess the, these, these warnings of judgment and, and how to respond to them. So three very brief lessons, uh, three takeaways from, from this day of the Lord that Joel experienced and Judah experienced. The first lesson that we can learn from Joel and that we must remember in our own time is that the disaster comes from Yahweh. This locust plague came from God. In chapter 2, in chapter two, he calls this, this plague of locusts. He says, this is Yahweh's army. The foundation of Joel's prophecy is the message that God alone is powerful over all creation. When the disaster falls on Judah, it's because God has brought it. It's not an accident. It's not just one of those weird things that happens in nature sometimes. This is not a random act of faceless nature without a will, without a personality, without a direction, without a plan. And this is not something that you can simply explain away scientifically. There is a moral and there is a theological explanation for this disaster. And the only true and rational way to process it and to interpret its meaning is to go to the theological meaning. It's to go to the moral lesson that we're getting here. What's, what are you saying? Why is that important? Well, we live in a day where everything is explained away materialistically 
and rationally and scientifically. No one wants to hear the theological interpretation of events. And see, that's for savages who live in caves and you know, who don't understand science, right? But enlightened people understand the science behind it, so therefore we understand it, we think. But the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God who holds together every fiber of your being by his power and by his will, the one who gives us breath, the one who gives us light and food is not a God who leaves anything to chance, nor does he abandon his creation to do its own thing. So when we look at hurricanes or tsunamis or earthquakes, we look at that and we say, there is, there's something that God is doing there. And probably the first response is we need to repent and we need to call on the name of God. Now, we don't look at it and say, wow, boy, they sure deserve that. What does Jesus say about that? He says, what about those guys that the Tower of Siloam fell on? Were they, were they worse off than you? Were they greater sinners than you? No, that's not the right response. You don't say, ah, well, I guess they deserved it. No, we say, oh, we all deserve that. We all need to repent. And we see that God is moving and acting in his creation. He is shaking us up in the day of the Lord. There, there are some Christians, and you've heard this response, they say, well, God doesn't cause earthquakes. God doesn't cause tornadoes. He doesn't send natural disasters. Okay, well, stop and think about what you're saying there. You're saying God knows that something like this is going to happen, and yet he doesn't stop it, and he's kind of powerless to stop it. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Oh, wait, maybe God doesn't even know what's going to happen in the first place. Maybe it surprises God as much as it surprises us. What are you saying there? That's not at all consistent with the scriptures. Amos the prophet who comes after Joel says this. He says, if there is calamity in the city, will not Yahweh have done it? In other words, if there's calamity, if there's disaster, if something has happened, you'd think God doesn't have anything to do with that? Of course not. Of course he does. Then Amos goes on to say, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and make the, makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, Yahweh, God of hosts, God of armies is his name. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Who is in charge of the winds and the rains and the storms and the earth and the waters above and the waters beneath? Who's in charge? It's God in heaven. Psalm 135, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. He caused the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. If he controls the wind and the lightning and the rain, he controls the locusts, he controls the earth, he controls the heavens above and the earth beneath and everything in between. The scriptures repeatedly testify that the God who created is the God who continues to superintend his creation. And so as those locusts marched through Judah, it was God who was saying, eat, 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 reproduce, grow, eat. And when he sends the winds, he says, blow, blow, blow. The earth shakes and the lightning crashes and the volcanoes erupt and rivers flood and markets crash and, and governments come and go at his command because we do not live in a chaotic, meaningless universe. We live in a logical world superintended by a logical God. 
And because God brings the plague and because he brings the calamity, it's not random, it's not happenstance, it's not inexplicable, and the targets of calamity are not random. And this brings us to our second lesson. Since we know that these disasters and the day of the Lord comes from the Lord, and that he will certainly bring judgment, he will come in judgment, then we know that evil has an expiration date. God uses these judgments to deliver his people from evil. Jesus spent a great deal of time uh, teaching his disciples about the great disaster that's going to come within a generation to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple. Uh, and so uh, it was a much greater calamity, by the way, than the locust plague because they recovered from that. They're not ever going to recover from the destruction of the temple. But even in the midst of this great tragedy that's coming, Jesus comforted his people with these promises of deliverance. He said in Matthew, Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Perhaps sometimes we get anxious about what things are going to look like in the next generation or in the generation after that. What kind of world will our grandchildren grow up in? Will what is happening in China happen here one day? It could very well. It might. I can't say it will, but it might very well happen. Well, remember that in times of judgment throughout history, God has always provided an ark of safety for his people. He deftly carried Noah and his family through the flood. He gave warning and allowed Lot to escape from Sodom and Gomorrah. By the hand of Joseph, he fed Jacob and his sons during the famine. In Egypt, he spared his people from the death of the firstborn, and he brought them through uh, the Red Sea on dry land. He carried Daniel and his friends and many others through the Babylonian captivity. He spared Esther and her people. Our ark of safety is Jesus, who will most definitely, most certainly carry us through any disaster in any day of the Lord. And sometimes that means for some Christians that, well, we're carried through this way. We are just ushered right to the feet of Jesus, and that's okay, and we're going to be okay, but we're not abandoned. That's, we're not abandoned. The day of judgment for all the earth is the day of resurrection. It's the same day. It's the day of resurrection for the saints. He cares for his own more than he cares for the birds and the flowers, and he will most certainly be merciful to his people. And so because God is the God of all the earth who controls everything all the time, this is not random stuff that he's doing in the world that just happens and just affects whoever. It is specific. It is directed. He accomplishes exactly what he wants to accomplish in the world when he visits in judgment. And whatever is lost by the faithful will be more than restored. He says to them in Joel, when you repent, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. In, in a, a Joel chapter 2, uh, if you're following along, verse 25, and he says just that. After they've repented, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, my great army which I set among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. 
And on the other side of the Babylonian captivity, they rejoice uh, in, in God's protection and his provision and the way he spared them. So there's no place for despair. There's no place for worry and anxiety as long as you are in the ark of safety, so long as you are united to Jesus. Apart from him, all hope is false hope. You can't have any hope apart from him. Apart from Jesus, you really are living your best life now. I heard somebody make a joke about that Joel Osteen book, you know, your best life now. Well, that's only true. Living your best life now, is that the name of it? Living, did I get that right? Your best life now? You know what I'm talking about. That that title is only true of people who are going to hell, right? That's the only way you're living your best life now is, is apart from Jesus. For those of us who are in Christ, there's so much better things to come, right? We're not living our best life now. It's, there's more to come. Uh, so the only arc of safety, the only deliverance is union with Jesus. But for us, these locust plagues and political turmoil and the rise and fall of kings are in fact blessings because they have a way of leveling out the playing field. He puts down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts those of low degree as we've been singing all Advent. In Joel, everyone is affected. It doesn't matter who you are or how rich you are, you are experiencing lack and need in the day of the Lord. For people who are used to doing a lot of things and used to doing whatever they want and having a lot of things, um, it's, it's, everything's changed and everything's different. For those who are used to doing without, it's just more of the same. But the rich and the comfortable and the satisfied know what it's like now to go without and it's an adjustment. So the day of the Lord is an equalizer. All men stand on the same footing before the Lord, helpless and needy and poor and hungry and dependent upon God for mercy. And so in this way, the day of the Lord is a catalyst for revival. It's a chance to get things right because the Lord controls the harvests and the markets. He can turn things to prosperity just as quickly as he turned them to want and famine. He can turn things around just as quickly as he took them away. And so the third and last lesson we'll look at today very briefly is that the day of the Lord is unpredictable and yet not a surprise. It wasn't a surprise in the sense that Judah knew that judgment was coming. They've had the prophets telling them this for a very long time. They had warning after warning after warning to turn from their idolatry. And for them and for us, it's not a matter of if God is coming in judgment, it's a matter of when. So it wasn't a surprise but it was unpredictable in the sense that no one expected a locust plague to be the thing that did it. It caught everyone off guard. The first few verses of Joel reveal this shock and, and awe. It's, it's the same way that the Lord still deals with men and nations. It's never the thing, when, when God shakes things up, it's never the thing that you predict, which means that you can never fully guard against it. The wicked can never be in a position where they're 100% immune to the effects of the judgment because the Lord does things in such a way that he does the thing that nobody's looking for. He does the thing that nobody's prepared for, the thing that no one's ready for. So no one could legitimately say, wow, man, if we had only worked out a better locust prevention program, or if we blame our leaders for not having a, a better you know, locust eradication uh, uh, council, if, if only we had that in place, this wouldn't have happened. No, because God does the thing that nobody's prepared for and nobody would have even thought could have happened. The only effective preparation for the day of the Lord, the only effective way to prepare yourself is to trust and obey. 
That's why we have these seasons of the church year to remind us of this so that we can take serious spiritual inventory, that we confess our sins, that we lead our families in righteousness. We ask ourselves, how am I growing? How am I maturing? How have you grown in 2018? What, what have you changed your mind on that you've seen God has shown this to you and now you're growing in grace and maturity in him? How, how am I faithful in worship? How, how am I uh, removing myself from, from participating in the works of darkness? How, how have I divorced myself from greed and murder and promiscuity and the hatefulness of all things holy? Uh, w- will I and am I removing myself from the things that paint a target on me when the day of judgment comes? You see, you dress like the enemy and your poverty and your destruction comes on you like a thief in the knife. We don't dress, we don't act, we don't talk, we don't think like the enemy. And I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, crazy hair or crazy, you know, body modifications. That looks like the enemy. But I'm also talking about, you know, the guy who lives his life as if uh, his boat is his God, or his vacation home is his God, or his job is his God. I'm talking about the normal, you know, button-down collar suburbanite guy who lives as if there's no God. You don't dress like that. He's the enemy of God as well. You don't dress like the enemy. We live like people who are going to stand before Jesus and give an account. And we take comfort in all the things we can't fix, all the things that are outside of our power and control, We take comfort in this that all of it's going to get resolved. That's also what the day of the Lord means and the coming day of judgment. Some of you are spending this Christmas season dealing with things that are outside of your control and beyond your ability to affect or change or transform. You can't do anything about it. You feel stuck because you're being sinned against. And the people who are sinning against you are are outside of your jurisdiction. So what's going to happen? Well, you pray and you wait for the day of the Lord. See, the day of judgment means that God comes and he fixes things. He shakes things up. He resolves because God is judge. He is the final arbiter of all things. And that means we are not the final arbiter of all things. And we don't have to try to be. We're called to be faithful over the things we're to be responsible for. But there's a whole world of problems that's too big for me. And that's fine. It's fine to confess that and to admit that, that sinners and offenders and tyrants don't have to stand before the judgment seat of me or you. They all come before the judgment seat of Christ. There's great comfort in that, that I don't have to work all this out because he is, because he will certainly come in judgment. Jesus is coming and he is coming in judgment. Just as sure as God kept his promise in sending him at the incarnation, so he will come to be our judge. Every one of us has an appointment with him at his coming. So prepare yourselves. Cry out to him for mercy. Confess your sins. Call on his name. Trust him and obey him. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to grant us grace by your Holy Spirit that we may reckon with this and take this seriously. 
Keep this in our minds and our hearts, that we must certainly give an account to you for all things, that we all have an appointment to stand uh, in, in, and give an account. So, Father, uh, we pray that even in this season of, of, of final preparation for rejoicing, that you would cause us to prepare also in all these spiritual ways to sort out relationships, to confess sin where we need to confess it. And so, Father, by this, sanctify us and grow us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.